Let's look to God in prayer. Now, Father, as we're exploring this psalm, pausing in our series, we're thankful for the way in which you connect with us in such a relevant way. On one hand, you're speaking globally. The next breath, here it is, you're addressing matters nationally. And yet, we can see how it is that you're also speaking to us personally, even in Yahweh, wanting each and every one in all these services this morning to examine where we stand in relationship to you. So, Father, thank you for these minutes you give us. The minutes count. People gather together not to hear our pastor and his opinions. They're coming together now to explore the truth that's been delivered by the sovereign God. So, Father, warm our hearts. Engage our minds. Shape our wills. We've come here again to see Jesus. Him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it took courage to sign the Declaration of Independence, didn't it? And John Hancock was the first to put his name down. And when he did so, he signed it with a big, bold signature, quote, so that King George doesn't have to put on his glasses, unquote. Meanwhile, King George, well, he was keeping a diary, day-by-day diary, and this is what he wrote on July 4th, 1776, quote, Nothing of importance happened today, unquote. It's easy to overlook in the streams of events, globally, nationally, and even personally, what's of significance, what's important, how today fits into tomorrow, how the past shapes the present. But all these things come together in a way that help us to better understand who God is and how God works. So I want to explore now this psalm in relationship to book two of the psalms, and in book two, Psalms 42 and onwards, you're going to be able to see here how God as Elohim has revealed himself as God as Yahweh. There are three significant observations I want to draw out of these verses that relate to God's sovereignty, God's reign, God's care of the nations globally. For us, nationally, yet thinking about each one here personally. And the first comes out of verse 1, down through verse 4. We're going to put it like this, that as we approach Independence Day together, watch it first of all, consider God's sovereignty, and note with me, God's works among the nations, as you see it, beginning in verse 1, down through verse 4. Now, you begin by pondering what it is that he wants to say to you and say to me, clap your hands, all peoples. Notice he does not say, clap your hands, all Israel. No, he's talking internationally. He's got all the nations now in front of him. 
And so no nation is exempt from this challenge that he's delivering. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to, and here it is now, the global name for him. Shout to God, Elohim, with loud songs of joy. And you do that, and you are able to do that, because now you connect verse 1, Elohim, with verse 2, for the Lord, capital L-O-R-D in your English version, the Lord Yahweh, the covenantal name for God, the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared. This is more than respect for God. This is reverence for God. During the Constitutional Convention of 1787, Benjamin Franklin proposed that the convention begin each day with a prayer. Of all the leaders, he's probably the one I would have least expected to say that. But as the oldest delegate at age 81, Franklin insisted that, quote, the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this, this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. This now is why we begin with Elohim, why we begin with all peoples of verse 1, including the peoples of this nation. So shout to God, the same name that was used in the Genesis account for the Creator. Now, if God is creator, can create something out of nothing, he can create something good out of something bad. That's true for you personally. That's true for us nationally. That is true globally. Watch how the streams of events connect. Because now he connects his creator name, Elohim, of verse 1, with his personal covenantal name, Lord Yahweh, of verse 2, for the Lord the Most High is to be feared. And then he adds this at this point, a great king, a great king over all the earth. Before 1776, there was 1766. And in Parliament of Great Britain, there is the Declaratory Act which stated that Parliament had sovereignty over all the colonies in all cases, I'm quoting now, whatsoever. What you have on hands then at that point is a clash of sovereign claims. Who has sovereign rights over the peoples? Now the churches at that time viewed that as a statement of blasphemy. There was a movement forward long before the Stamp Act. And so now you begin to see how events begin to start coming together in a way that helps us to better understand who God is, what God does, how God works, you see. Events that connect together. And I've thought about that when I thought about, for example, the publication of the King James Bible, 1611. Years ago, I was sitting in a lecture, brilliant men, loved Jesus as Lord and Savior, 
and that you're doing a point-counterpoint argument, which you will find in evangelical circles over certain subjects. And the question was, was there a biblical basis for the Americans to secede from Great Britain? A biblical basis, when in Romans 13, we're to submit to all authorities. Fascinating, the give and the take. Good arguments. I'm leaning forward. The one who was highly emotional and arguing strongly for a biblical basis for separation from King George made me smile. He was making his arguments based upon what he had in his hand, the King James Version. You see the irony there? Now, if you and I were to explore the King James Version, there's an introduction that says, to the most high and mighty Prince James, by the grace of God. And when Queen Elizabeth, England's ruler, died childless, James VI of Scotland became James I, King of England. And if you read his biography carefully, what's fascinating is that there is strong evidence he knew Jesus as his Lord and as his Savior. But there's more. A few years later, that was 1611, in which the King James translation was put together. In 1620, the pilgrims would sign the Mayflower Compact. They thought that King James was exerting too much authority, as was Parliament. Mayflower Compact put into effect, the compact said, in effect, that peoples were to govern themselves. Now, William Bradford and other pilgrim fathers signed the compact, believed that they did not govern apart from God, sovereign ruler over all, but they did not prove, provide for the rule of a human king in the compact. Well, James I was shocked by this, but then again, in his writings, it's become clear, he didn't think much of these people who were on their way to what we and I, you and I know as America. Not much could come of that, he thought. It's easy to overlook small beginnings. But you see what God and his sovereign purposes does. He is Elohim, he is Yahweh, and in his relational connectedness through you, through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, he reminds us that even in the small matters of life that secular society overlooks, he's working his plan, He's working his purposes, and he's doing all things for his glory. And so now the Jewish reader at this point takes a deep breath. He has just now moved from the nations of verse 1, all peoples, and using Elohim, to the Jews of verse 2, and the Lord the Most Highest be feared, back to now all the peoples, a great king over all the earth, and now you and I, post-cross, we look at that cross and remind ourselves that over Christ's head were the words, King of the Jews. Meanwhile, we're reading here a great king over all the earth. Meanwhile, Luke would remind us, and he was a Gentile, not a Jew, that that was penned in three different languages so that there would be a global understanding of this kingship. Back to this passage, 
He subdued peoples under us. And so now the Jews are, are, re, are recording in their minds the history of all that God has done, such as in the book of Joshua and the way in which God led the conquest of Canaan. But furthermore, and nations under our feet. But then again, in verse 4, and here's what's fascinating now, and you can tell that there's a heavy Jewish emphasis here. In verse 4, he chose our heritage for us. The pride of Jacob, he loves. And I thought about that, and thought about that a lot, and now I allow myself, and maybe you do the same, to begin to fast-forward history. And there's a time, subsequently, where God and his purposes allows this nation to come into being, and then in 1948 allows for the state of Israel to come into being. Remember, as we've said, there's no nation for Hittites or Jebusites or Termites or any of them, but there is a nation, you see, for Israelites, and while the others have been exterminated, Ah, oh, you're with me. <laughs> there is an effort among many groups surrounding Israel to exterminate them. But God in his sovereign purposes allows for Franklin Delano Roosevelt to die at the time in which Israel's statehood is being debated to be replaced by Harry Truman who was steeped in the scriptures knew Jesus Christ as his Lord and his Savior, knew his Old Testament, and now I pick up on the writings. At a crucial meeting, Clark Clifford, the White House counsel, had the task of presenting the argument to Harry Truman in favor of recognizing Israel and its statehood. He rehearsed the history of the Jews. He even introduced texts from Scripture. Notably, Deuteronomy 1 and verse 8. Behold, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers. And now I've marked what comes next. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Meanwhile, the psalmist writes, he chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. And so then, what we see here is a sense in which God is sovereignly working, and why Harry Truman viewed himself as Cyrus, the Old Testament Persian leader who was responsible for the Jews returning to the land. How do you understand all this? Well, let's use Abraham Kuyper, who eventually would become prime minister of the Dutch people. Quote, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine, exclamation point. And now you can see how all the events surrounding the epicenter of Israel, Jerusalem in particular, are you fascinated how an embassy of the U.S. has just been positioned symbolically in Jerusalem? 
He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. And now you've got the swath of history and you're connecting dots. The King James Version, the Mayflower Compact, racing forward past 1776 to Harry Truman and the 1948 and the enactment of establishment of the Israeli state. No wonder he says, Selah. So you're to pause and you're to reflect. But then he launches into the second stanza. And so you're now with me, and you've made your way up to verse 5 at this point, down through verse 7. And second of all, you're going to consider with me God's sovereignty and note not only God's work among the nations in 1 through 4, but now God's challenge to the nations in 5 through 7. And notice how it begins in verse 5. God has gone up with a shout. Pause again. In ancient history, whenever a conquering king was able to deliver to the people the information that a nation had been conquered, he would typically rise up at a minimum on a hill or preferably up on a mountain in which there would be an echo chamber and his voice could be heard among peoples. And now there is imagery behind what's being described here. And you ask yourself, is this a foretaste of future ascension of Jesus Christ? God. Now he uses Elohim, has gone up with a shout. And now you ponder furthermore how once again he uses Yahweh, ties it all together for those that have a personal relationship with God. He is Yahweh to you, the covenantal God, the Lord. And then you ask, is he connecting dots to the future of our Lord's return with the sound of a trumpet? So what do you do with this? Sing praises to God. You're drinking in biblical teachings. You're drinking in biblical theology. You're drinking in all the truths about God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our God. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. You pause there. And when you take your family or friends and you hang out together in Washington, D.C., I've got a brother who works on Capitol Hill. Ask him to give you a tour. Tell him Gary sent you. First rays of sun that illuminate our national capital each morning fall upon the eastern side of its tallest building, a 555-foot monument to the father of our country. And there on its top, inscribed on the eastern side of the four-sided aluminum capstone, are these Latin words, laus Deo, which means praise be to God. And now you're at verse 6. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King sing praises. But now you're going to go global. For God is the king of all the earth. And now you think of king of the Jews on one hand, so particular, but in various languages above Christ's head on the other hand. And now you're exploring with me the significance of the global impact and who God is and what God has done. God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a song. Sing.
So maybe you're doing your tour of Washington, D.C., and you're thinking now about the singing aspect of things. So you make your way into the house swing of the Capitol, and there's a line from America the Beautiful carved into the wall, America, God shed his grace on thee, and crown thy good with brotherhood from sea to shining sea. And in the house chamber, you go there, and here's this inscription, In God we trust. And at the east entrance of the center chamber, the words Anuit, Koipetes, are inscribed, Latin, for God has favored our undertakings. And the word in God we trust is written on the southern entrance. And note what God hath wrought, quote, unquote, the first message sent over the telegraph inscribed on S. Samuel F.B. Morse's plaque found on the outside of the old Supreme Court chamber of the Capitol. And you know that you're not, and I'm not, Israelites, and that we can't make this out as though America is Israel. No, what we do is we take the principles here that are found not only in, in pondering God's sovereignty and God's works among the nations, and we're one of them in one through four, but we take up God's challenge and God's challenge to the nations as he lays before us in verses 5, 6, and 7 as we're thinking significantly about who God is, significantly about how God works, and how this relates to us particularly and also to the nations globally as we try to think through what God would want to say to you and me today. And now you're up finally to the last stanza. And when you get to the last stanza, now, thirdly, consider God's sovereignty and note with me God's reign over the nations. It's in verse 8, again in verse 9. God reigns over the nations. That includes the U.S., includes Great Britain, it includes Iran, includes Afghanistan. God sits on his holy throne. So a foretaste, evidently, of that future day, because he's not only speaking poetically, but also prophetically. God stands out of time. God sees the past, the present, and the future, all in the present tense. Princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. And now you begin to explore even more who this God is. In the Declaration of Independence, four different references to God are utilized. My, my text is all marked up. In the first paragraph, the laws of nature and of nature's God. Second paragraph, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Take the creator from the classroom, you take rights from the students in that classroom, present and future. Back to Elohim. He and he alone is the creator, certain unalienable rights as a result of giving to you and to me. But thirdly, in the Declaration of Independence, we therefore, the representatives of the USA, United States of America, in general Congress assembled appealing to the supreme judge of the world. And then fourthly, here you find furthermore, in the final words of the Declaration of Independence, and with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, 
we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And so we look at that, and the princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. Jew and Gentile alike become one people of God if they have put faith and trust in God through Jesus Christ who died in our place for our sins. So he ends all the shades of the book of Revelation for the shields of the earth belong to God. Elohim, global. He is highly exalted. And you ponder the significance of that. And then you think about what John Adams was relaying to his wife Abigail. July 3rd, 1776. But I must submit to you all my hopes and fears to an overruling providence in which unfathomable and perhaps even unfashionable in the eyes of the people, as this faith might be, I firmly believe. God reigns over the nations. It took courage to sign that declaration. He signs it with a big, bold signature so the king doesn't have to put on his glasses. Meanwhile, King George, in his diary, nothing of importance happened today. But with all the connecting dots of the events over the course of time, we see how past, present, and future are all woven together in God's purposes for God's glory so that God and God alone receives the praise. Let's take these thoughts and find ways to practically share insights with those around us on this 4th of July that's coming our way. Let's stand together. Father, you are sovereign. And so we've taken your word and we've taken the events, certain number of them from history, we embrace Kuiper's statement of sovereignty. We see how all these things fit together under your plan according to your purpose and how all things work together for the good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. So for the one who comes here today and maybe he knows you as Elohim but has not yet embraced the fullness of what it means for you to be Yahweh, personal, relational, involved, engaged in their lives. Pray now that he or she will repent of sin and put faith exclusively in Jesus as Lord and as Savior and understand what it means to have one sovereign over them and one personal enough to die for them. And I pray they'll embrace you as Savior and Lord. For this, we'll give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.